level you do sole proprietor, a certain level you do S corp, a certain level you do C corp. Like, is there certain levels like, Hey, that's like a gradual yeah. step you keep so going for, or like for real estate investors, for tax wise, almost never would you want to put your, uh, your rental properties in an S corporation or C corporation. You probably almost always be better off just leaving it as a sole proprietorship or a partnership, nothing more. Shout out Sean. Changing the game Shout through real estate. Yeah. Changing the game through real estate. I can never wait. Got what it takes. I got this on my plate. And I got a budget. Teach you how to save. Listen to this podcast. You'll be amazed. Play this any morning, any night, any day. We're the winning team. We were born to be brave. Yeah. Changing the game through real estate. Yeah. So um, welcome to the Changing the Game through uh, Real Estate Podcast. I'm really excited about our guest, uh, Grant Doherty. He's a real estate tax professional. Can you just kind of tell any, everyone who, I guess, may or may not know about you, who you are, uh, why, and kind of why you got into Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you taxes? know, first off, thanks for having me on here. Uh, you know, it's always a joy to get on here and uh, talk tax strategy and, uh, you know, different financial aspects and different financial strategies. But you know, my name is Grant Doherty, uh, born and raised in Houston, Texas. I went to school to study finance and accounting. Uh, I'm also an enrolled agent. Uh, so I've been doing this now. Uh, enrolled agents are just licensed to file taxes in all 50 states. I've been doing this now for about three years. I've been in the industry almost almost six years now, but um, I've been self-employed now for going on three years. So it's been quite a journey. I work with a bunch of small business owners that Small business owners and real estate investors that make less than a million dollars a year. That's generally who, who, you know, most of my clientele are, um, you know, with, you know, pretty even split between business owners and real estate investors and, um, <clears throat> you know, real estate investors that come in all different uh, shapes and forms, you know, like some of them are just completely passive. Some of them are very active. Some, you know, do 1031 exchanges. Some of them just take, you know, utilize all the tax codes. Some just, uh, you know, have a property management company and just have simple passive income. So uh, it's, 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 it's a, a joy and it's been quite a journey. I know um, a lot of people always think about like, Hey, I'm going to hire a CPA. So why would people go to what's like, what's the difference between a CPA and like yeah, an EA? What's the kind of, that's you don't hear question. EAs so that much. CPA is certified public accountant um, and EA is enrolled agent. So they are relatively similar, you know, in the, in the tax industry, uh, in the financial industry in general, they carry about the same equal weight, especially in the tax industry, right? Um, they're both uh, licensed in all 50 states. Uh, they both had to pass exams to get their license. Now, uh, the CPA exam is a little different than the EA exam. <clears throat> CPA exam is uh, a four-part test with one of those tests, maybe like one and a half of those tests, uh, consisting of tax-related uh, subjects, whereas the EA is three exams, uh, but all three are uh, they cover taxes. So I like to look at the CPA as like a, a river that's you know a mile wide, but maybe like ten feet deep. It's not not a very deep river. Like ten, 10 feet could be pro- probably yeah. pretty deep for some, but uh, the EA is more like a, you know maybe a two hundred foot wide river, but it's three hundred feet deep. So it's you know a lot of information, but not as much uh, information to cover. So, but essentially on the same level, you know they're both uh, you know licensed on a federal level. Well, 
So the EA license is actually administered on a federal level from the IRS, and the uh, CPA is issued at the state. But they have, uh, you know, uh, they're supposed to have, you know, representation in all 50 states if you're a CPA or an EA. Okay. So just to jump right into it, one of the um, main questions I hear all the time uh, from, like, clients and other, like, like guests and stuff like that is like most people want to do like the big advantage into real estate is becoming a real estate uh, professional, like tax wise. Can you kind of explain like for people who I guess haven't heard in the past, like what is a, when they mean a real estate professional yeah, no, no, status tax wise, do you, that's a really you good topic. It's, a, it's actually a, a really strategic option to take if you invest in real estate. So but let's just back up a little bit. So real estate rental income by nature is passive. So, um, you know, one of the cool things about having passive income is not subject to Social Security and Medicare tax. So, you know, if you're just very passive uh, rental income investor, then that income is all passive income. And the losses that you can generate from different things like depreciation, you know, bonus depreciation, whatever the case may be, um, if you generate a loss from that property, it's a passive loss. And passive losses can only offset passive income. So, um, you know, there are advantages to having just simple passive income, but like you said, there are, uh, you know, there's real estate professional status and there are tax incentives for, uh, qualifying as a real estate professional status. And one of those is that in the event that you have, um, you know, someone with like earned income, W2 income, you know, they're out, they're out, they're working, that is active income. And as I said before, passive losses can only offset passive income. They can't offset active income. Well, uh, let's just take a situation where maybe you have, a, a, you know, a spouse, you, know, you have two spouses, one is a lawyer, they work a W-2 job and they make, you know, let's just say a million dollars or something like that. That million dollars is all active income. And let's just say they also invest in some real estate. If uh, they just leave it as is, they don't really do a whole lot. That income is going to all be passive. However, if the other spouse uh, qualifies as a real estate professional, they can actually uh, turn the income from passive to active. So if they generate any losses from the property, it can now transfer over and offset the W-2 income. So it can be very strategic for some, uh, you know, high earning individuals. Now to be a real estate professional, it's not easy. You have to, uh, you know, you have to, uh, work in a real property trader business uh, for 750 hours in a year. Uh, well, there's two tests. You have to meet the 750 hour test and then, uh, more than half of all the personal services that you render must be in a real property trader business. So if you have like a W-2 job and you spend, I don't know, let's just say a thousand hours a year working at that job, you have to spend a thousand and one other hours outside of that W-2 job working on real estate just to even potentially qualify as a real estate professional. Um, and there's a two-pronged test. So you have real estate professional, and then to turn the income from uh, passive to active, you also have to meet material participation in that property. So it's a two-pronged test. Um, it doesn't work for everyone. You know, it is a lot of work, um, but it can be a very powerful strategy, uh, you know, if implemented correctly. So I guess like like real estate agents, property managers, like stuff like stuff like that, that would be pretty easy to prove that okay, this is if that's yeah. all you do, it's pretty easy to prove that way. So let's say well, if someone has like a W two and they have a side business net, uh stuff like that. So like, I know that's extremely hard to claim that real estate professional status, but if they're like I guess trying to, what is like the 
like systems do you have to uh, create like a journal and time log everything like because i know the tax is yeah. like you're guilty till proven innocent yeah, so no, how no, do you kind of good point so uh, the tax system is set up to where you know if anyone ever reaches out to you the burden of proof is on you so you have to essentially prove whatever it is that you are putting on your tax return um and you know real estate professional status you know we just mentioned how strategic it can really be uh and so you would want to make sure that you document all of your time you know one of the things that we mentioned 750 hours uh and over half of your personal services must be in a real property trader business go to google um you know download a template you know there are templates that you can download there are apps that you can download that um to, you know to download to your phone and they can help you track your time uh you know the templates are cool you know that's that, that can be physical um you know, documentation that you can keep, but having it on a phone, you know, having something on the cloud uh, is probably going to be way better because it can transfer from, from computer to computer in the event that like, you know, you drop one and it breaks or something like that, but you want to have something to track your time. And so in the event that you're ever audited, you can just boom, present them the information and they can go about analyzing that and either accepting it or rejecting it. So how detailed would they have to be? Be like, okay, like from one to two, I just did real estate or I, I did real estate. This is exactly what I did. This is uh, my receipts possibly. Like how detailed do you have to you be know, on being your journal? As detailed just to- uh, as possible is going to be the best option. So, you know, the times that you were working, what exactly you were doing, who all was there, what, what each person was doing. So for example, uh, one thing that you'll see is uh, so, so, one of the tests that you can meet. So real estate professional status is a test that only one person, uh, you know, uh, can meet at a time. Whenever you start talking about material participation, spouses can combine their times. So that can be, you know, that, that's a that's a big benefit. But at times where it can kind of be a little a little sketchy is like, OK, let's just say we go to I don't know, we have to run up to Home Depot to go grab some nails for, for the, you know, a new toilet or something, something like that. Uh, the time that is spent, you know, if y'all both go up to Home Depot, you both can't count the time because essentially it's the same thing. Um, so only one of y'all could count the time. So like yeah. that, that would be like, you know, uh, one of the like, you know, intricacies is, is, you know, making sure that you document everyone who is there and what each person is doing to make sure that you're not overlapping times. So can you combine, let's say like, let's say you both work W-2s, right? And then let's say... One person is a real estate agent and investor on the side. The other one's like manages uh like the rental properties and something like that. Can they like combine the time and so kind of use that or like for material participation? Not really. They can't combine time for like real estate professional status. That would be something completely different. Now, if you have one spouse that meets real estate professional status, so the way how I like to look at it is um, <clears throat> time that you spend doing. Uh, real estate professional status doesn't always count as material participation, but almost always time that you spend doing material participation almost always counts as real estate professional status. So um, as long as you separate out the two different hours, you can combine hours for material participation. You cannot combine hours for real estate professional status. I got you. I know uh, 
I've heard from a couple of CPAs and for people who have W-2 jobs, it's smart to get into like short, uh, short-term short rentals, Airbnbs, because there's a lot of tax advantages and kind of loopholes that yeah, kind of man, helps um, so, so W-2 people. I'm going to go on the record and say I can't stand Airbnbs. Anywhere I go, I'm going to get a hotel 100% of the time. <laughs> just, I've had too many bad experiences with Airbnbs. Now, uh, you should stay at mine and we'll help, change, we'll help change your perspective. But yes, there are a lot of tax incentives for <laughs> investing in Airbnbs. And so just make sure you're a good uh, you know, homeowner, a landlord or whatever, and it'll work out good. But essentially, yeah, um, getting back to like the tax incentives of it. So um, Airbnbs are considered short-term or you know, there's a loophole out there. It's called the short-term rental loophole. And essentially, if your average tenant stays seven days or less, then you have a short-term rental. And short-term rentals, according to the IRS, are not considered rental activities. As weird as it sounds, that's just that's just one of their rules. And so if it's not a rental activity, one of the caveats that you no longer have to meet to change the income from passive to active is you don't have to meet real estate professional status. If it's not a rental activity, you don't have to meet reps. Um, so in order to change the income from passive to active, all you would have to meet is material participation. So, um, you know, a lot of high earning W2, um, you know, taxpayers, they'll go and buy a short term rental and they'll meet material participation in that property. And then the losses from that property can offset their W2 income. So that's been a, 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 a relatively new thing that has popped up, you know, over the past few years with the rise of Airbnb. Um, so yeah, tons of tax incentives. There's, there's a few other things that you need to keep in mind, you know, for example, uh, short-term rentals. So residential property in general has a depreciation life of 27 and a half years. Um, and then if it's commercial, it's 39 years. However, short-term rentals, even though technically the building itself may be like a house, which would be residential because it's short term, it is automatically classified in the 39 year property. So that's like a big difference that you would need to keep, uh, keep, keep, uh, in mind whenever you're investing in like short term rentals. Um, so for the person to do that, they have to be actively managing it like themselves, like a super host or something like that. They have to actively um, manage it themselves, right? You know, I'm going to say yes on the podcast just because, you know, it's almost impossible to meet material participation if you have a property manager. However, there are always those special circumstances where, you know, you do have a property manager and somehow you still meet material participation. But for 99.9% of people out there, if you have a property manager, you are almost certainly not going to meet material participation. So that that's just yeah, that's a really good point to uh, yeah. to, to bring up is that if you have a property manager, almost forget about it. But like I said, I mean, I've you know, I, all I do is just research this stuff, you know, day in day out. So you know, you you run across the people that disagree with that, but you know, generally across the board, I would say no. You know, that's not what that's not what I would. Uh, that's not, it would be in my plans. If you have a property manager, no. And they should keep a journal also just like, yeah. hey, exactly oh, what yeah, they no, do. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Um, You mentioned about depreciating um the asset for Airbnb like 39 and a half years. I know this year is technically the last year for bonus depreciation. Yeah. Can you kind of like touch on like, because I know there's so many issues that like people want to lower the taxes and that's a very good 
um, I guess, tax strategy also. Yeah, Can you yeah, kind of touch definitely. on that? On so what um, that exactly 100% is? 100% bonus depreciation. Uh, essentially, if you have a, an asset that has a depreciable life of uh, 20 years or less, then you can have a bonus depreciation. You can, you know, you are eligible to have bonus depreciation on that item. You do not have to take bonus depreciation, uh, but you, uh, you know, you can resort to uh, spreading it out over many years, which again, you know, has has its benefits, right? If you plan to have increased income the next year, maybe it may be better to save some of that um, depreciation for the next year. Um, you know, the, the, the idea with running, uh, you know, with depreciation offsetting the income and getting a larger tax, uh, you know, a larger refund or increased tax savings in the year now is uh, time value of money, right? You know, the, a dollar earned today is worth more than a dollar earned tomorrow. So that's always something you got to keep in mind with doing bonus depreciation. But yeah, um, essentially, if you have an asset with a depreciable life of 20 years or less, then you can write off essentially the uh, 100% of the cost uh, in the very first year. Next year, it drops down to 80%. Uh, and then after that, 60%, 40 and then 20 So uh, yeah, last year uh, for 100% bonus depreciation, it's a big time uh, benefit, especially for those who may be doing like cost seg on a property or, or something like that. Because, um, you know, whenever you do a cost seg, you know, you can usually reallocate um about 20 percent of the property maybe a little bit more depending how aggressive uh you know your specialist is uh but you can reallocate around maybe 20 percent of the of the building into um you know a, a, a smaller depreciable item and you can 100 percent bonus depreciate it in the very first year don't forget though that you have depreciation recapture you know um so whenever you do go and and sell the the asset you have to recapture all the depreciation you took. So, I mean, there's a few things that you can do whenever that moment comes, but that's something that you should not uh, forget about because it is, it does come back to bite some of the butt and they don't realize it. So I have this, uh, one of my business partners, he's about to sell his property in, uh, in Florida and he's kind of stuck in a situation where like, Hey, this is the last year for bonus depreciation. He wants to sell it. He, doesn't really want to 1031 exchange it. He's going to want to sell it and try to like kind of offset that with another property with, so kind of like, let's say for instance, like he sells it, he gets that recapture um, and he buys another property. does like a cost against that. Like what would be your advice for, I guess for, for him and like, what's the different strategies he can do on his exit. And if he decides to buy another property, yeah, no, kind of like offset really that. Uh, you know, you bring up a really good point. So, um, you know, a lot of people like the 1031 exchange. So like, you know, if, if you want to uh, sell an asset that you've had, a, you know, a ton of appreciation on, and then you want to use those proceeds to acquire a new asset, um, you know, you could do, look into a 1031 exchange. 1031 exchange, though, they have basis rollovers. So that can be kind of an issue uh, for yeah, like the 45-day uh, so, yeah, so identification you period. Do, um, uh, a 1031 exchange, you have to identify in, in 45 and then close on, I think it's 180. Um, but the, the big thing that I'm talking about yeah. is the basis. So whenever you buy a property, let's just say you bought it at $1,000 and you took $500 of depreciation, your now new adjusted basis is $500. So if you uh, sell this property and you acquire a new property, 
that $500 basis rolls over to the new property. So whenever you are looking to claim depreciation, that's like one of the big things with uh, whenever you acquire a new property, one of the biggest benefits that you have is the amount of depreciation that you can claim. You know, you just have larger depreciation amounts. If you 1031 exchange, whatever your old depreciation basis was, it rolls over to the new property. So it's not really strategic from you know a depreciation standpoint. But like you said, there are also options where you can simply just dispose of the property. You can sell it. You can trigger capital gains tax and depreciation tax. And if you use those proceeds to acquire a new property, you can run a cost seg on those properties and the losses that you would generate would offset your depreciation recapture tax and your uh, capital gains tax. So that's another option that you can look into. And also not to mention when you acquire the new property, you have that increased basis. So you get a, you know, a nice little deduction. Now, of course, you create the same scenario where, like, okay, now I have a new property with more depreciation that I'm you know, kind of, you know, kicking down the road. So you have to constantly be evolving your tax, uh, you know, your strategy. Um, for younger investors, yeah. I prefer the dispose cost seg to offset and just keep it moving from there. The older you get and the closer to uh, passing that you get, maybe the 1031 is a little bit uh, wiser of a choice. Yeah, because for him, let's say like he's going to make a hundred on it. Mm -hmm. He's about to get destroyed in taxes, but he, he can go buy uh, multiple properties, cost seg the whole whole thing and yeah. get that to offset that. But I do want to touch on because like a lot of people might not fully understand, like what exactly when we say cost yeah, segregation, yeah, yeah, what no, do good you point. exactly So uh, whenever you buy a property. Uh, let's just say you buy a house and the house is, I don't know, let's say $1,500. You know, let's just keep the math simple. Um, when From that $1,500, the property uh, you buy, whenever you buy a property, you buy the building and you buy the land that's on it. So land is not depreciable, but the building is. And so whenever you have a building, if you buy for $1,500, let's just say it allocates to $500 land, $1,000 building. Okay. This building can be depreciated and if it's residential it's 27 and a half years if it's commercial it's 39 years so you would just take let's just say it's a house you would take the the 1000 divided by 27 and a half and boom that is your depreciation deduction every single year from there on for 27 years 27 and a half years now where the cost seg kind of jumps in and makes things a little bit more strategic is whenever you buy a property you know you buy a house that house is made up of a bunch of different components on the inside that can be broken out and depreciated at much quicker rates, usually five, uh, seven, 10 or 15 years. <clears throat> things like uh, your oven, things like your microwave, things like uh, your sidewalk, your patio, your fences, different things like that um, make up the overall property, even a swimming pool. You know, if you buy a house with a swimming pool, swimming pools are considered a land improvement um and are not part of the actual house so you can 100 bonus depreciate a swimming pool if you ever acquire a property with that and so um, that's what essentially what the cost seg does is that okay you have this thousand dollar valued building but let's say two hundred dollars of it is made up of, of sidewalks and patios and swimming pools that two hundred dollars can be immediately expensed and and uh, written off with the cost segregation analysis and 100 bonus depreciation uh, and so it's just a way to speed up the amount of depreciation you can claim in a year. 
when we mentioned we mentioned bonus depreciation and we mentioned cost segregation, um, is that uh, for people so listening? Is that the same thing? It's just the actual analysis of going in and breaking out the components. Bonus depreciation is the form of actually claiming the depreciation. So doing a cost seg is like doing, um, I don't know, like a, a spreadsheet analysis. You're just actually going in and you're dissecting out the information. You're breaking everything out. The bonus depreciation is what you get after you do the cost seg. So with the cost seg, you say building 1000 swimming pool, $500. And then from there, you take bonus depreciation on the pool, write that off. And then uh, bonus depreciation doesn't apply to the actual building. So you divide that by 27 and a half and that's your deduction. I got you. So I was having this uh, conversation this morning at CrossFit Krypton about like, so there's this investor, he was buying this house, fixing up and he was like house hacking, like, but I guess house hacking his rooms out. I was wondering, is that kind of the same thing as the Augusta rule or is that completely uh, different when it comes to like, uh, running yeah, out your so, pri- primary um, residence. He would probably wouldn't be able to qualify for the Augusta rule uh, just because he's also receiving rental income on that property already. Um, but yeah, no, so the, the Augusta rule is essentially where if you have your primary residence uh, and you rent it out, uh, you can rent it out for 14 days or less and receive the income tax free. This is a really good strategy. So first off, it has to be your personal home. It can't be like a secondary home or anything like that. So you run a a high risk with renting out your own personal home. People can come into your very private living quarters. Okay, so that's like one of the risks. Another one of the risks is you don't get to write off any expenses incurred with getting the property set up. So if you have to hire a cleaning crew to come in and clean everything up, you don't get to write that off. But all of the income that you receive will be tax free. So uh, this stuff, you see this stuff work really well whenever you have like, uh, like when the Olympics comes to town, that'll be big. Whenever you have the Super Bowl come to town, or maybe if you have a World Series come to town, that's when, you know, strategies like this are really big. Um, you know, there's some people that uh, they have multi-million dollar homes and they rent out these homes to these uh, for these big corporate executive parties and different things like that. So that's where it generally makes sense to do the Augusta rule. Whenever you do a house hack, that wouldn't qualify, unfortunately. And uh, I, it's probably self-explanatory, but you can't uh, rent th- uh, your own personal residence so, out to your own you know, business, can you? You can. You can. A uh, few things to keep in mind. You, if you have just like a single member LLC, you probably couldn't do it. You would need to be taxed as like a a C corporation or an S corporation or something like that. And the, the thing that I would tell a business owner, if they were looking to do this is make sure that the expense is ordinary and necessary for your business to incur. If the sole reason for doing it was to avoid taxes, you didn't even really need a meeting, but you just decided to have one anyway. Like if you don't have any employees, you know, you can kind of see how the IRS would probably look at that. Like, okay, this just seems like a scheme to, not pay any taxes. You didn't really need a meeting. Now, if you are an, you know, if you are a business owner, you have multiple employees and you host a meeting at your, at your home, then uh, that changes things a little bit, right? You know, if you're an S corp owner, you have employees, you're actually hosting, you know, quarterly meetings or year end meetings, whatever the case may be, that's a little different. And it actually uh, makes a little bit more sense to do something like that. So, um, it depends. It depends. But yes, the in short, the answer is yes, it is available for business owners. 
So what about for like real estate agents? Cause they have all like, they try to throw client events all the time. So could they do like a client event tank at their house so, and rent it um, to themselves? <laughs> here's the thing about that. So remember first it would have to be an S corp or a C corp. So you wouldn't want, you know, put your, your rental income yeah. or, you know, your rental properties in one of those uh, tax entities anyway. Um, I would probably say no, that that's just, that's just where I'm leaning towards unless you could actually show legit, uh, you know, a, a business reason for having the meeting. Okay. So um, in that situation, probably not so much, but maybe uh, in the event that you have uh, an S corp and you have all of your employees there and you bring in some other uh, potential partners for business, then, then yeah, now we're starting to, you know, come up with a legit reason for having this meeting. So it really all depends. Cause you also, you got to remember entertainment expenses are no longer deductible, um, you know, in the tax code. So you don't want an IRS agent to come in and look at it and say, is this business or is this entertainment? Because if they reclassify it as entertainment, then they're just going to throw out the deduction. I gotcha. So let's say for instance, someone just bought a house and they get roommates and they rent out their house as like a rental income. And they also live there also. Um, are they able to use the same advantages as like if they didn't live there, let's say, are they able to uh, run it like a business and all their expenses, let's say they're fixing up the house or um, to certain expenses that come with rental property yeah. uh, so, management is that they yeah, get so if you're uh, doing a house right you're still eligible to claim all the expenses that are eligible to uh, any other rental uh, rental investor and you are able to meet real estate professional status and material participation if you meet the the requirements so yeah you know i think house hacking is a great way for those who want to get their feet wet in the, in, you know, the overall rental real estate investing uh, market, I think it's a great way to get started. Um, you know, cause you know, you get a property, you have other tenants paying down the, the mortgage and you still get to claim expenses. So I think it's great. Um, I think, I think it, it, it becomes tougher whenever you get a little bit older and maybe you have a family or something. That's where, you know, the, the circumstances change. Yeah. And you can't just rent out to anyone, right? You can't rent out to like, like I can't rent rent a room to my brother well, and uh, you say can he's rent it out um, to him. Pant, you would just like, have to, or can you, uh, you know, charge him a fair market rental value? You know, so yeah, you could you could still rent it out. Okay. To him. Okay. Um. So I guess so. I me and my me and my wife go back and forth with this uh, particular topic. Um. So she loves four hundred one ks. I personally do not like 401ks. I don't like the fact that, okay, I'm going to get taxed. Like I put money tax deferred uh, in with, but on the back end, I'm going to have make more money and taxes are probably going to be even more and I have to take it out. So what's your kind of your take on tax wise for 401ks, IRAs? You bring up a really good point. So um, I, I think that everyone should be, um, should be planning for retirement eventually. So if you aren't maxing out or if you aren't putting money into a retirement account, still have a plan. You know, I, I run across people all the time that plan to build a real estate empire and, you know, maybe they'll just receive the rental income. And since rental income is taxed less than earned income, you know, it's, it's still a great alternative to uh, maybe like a retirement account or something like that. So some people, you know, prefer the real estate route, but, um, yeah, I definitely think, you know, if you uh, 
have a W-2 job, you should, you know, look to at least get your employer match on a 401k. I think that everyone should be putting money into a Roth IRA, not only for themselves, you know, the Roth IRA has tax-free growth and tax-free distributions for yourself, you know, once when you reach retirement age. But let's just say that you never actually use, have to, you never have to use the money in your Roth IRA. And you have uh, some heirs that you know are going to be around after you're gone. You can actually leave that money to them, uh, and they can receive the Roth IRA and receive the same tax-free benefits that you would have received. So, uh, from a um, generational wealth perspective, Roth IRAs are amazing. Now, whenever you start talking about business owners, uh, you know they they have options for solo 401ks and SEP IRAs. Now, one thing I want to uh, make a point of is that. If you if your only income, if your business is rental income and it's passive, so you cannot open up like a solo 401k and your only income is uh, passive income. So if you like, you know, if you're just a real estate investor and you're just receiving this passive income, you're actually not eligible to take that money and put it into a, a solo 401k or something like that. You have to have earned income. So a few caveats to think with that. But um, I think everyone's situation is different, you know. I think a healthy balance of, of everything is a great way to, uh, you know, set yourself up financially, uh, you know, make yourself financially stable. So you mentioned on the back end of Roth IRAs, they don't actually get uh, like they can pass on that to their kids. So is 401ks different? Like 401ks, oh, they're going to tax it all and then give it to kids. How does that that work that's on the back really end good, of a really 401k. Question. So 401k is one of the, one of the things that I'm not a, a fan of when it comes to 401ks is their RMDs, required minimum distribution. So, and don't quote me on the age, it's like 72 and a half or something like that. But whenever you reach that age, you have to start taking out uh, minimum distributions uh, versus like a Roth IRA, they don't have RMDs. So if you ever just never needed the money in your Roth IRA, you could just let it sit there, just let it grow, grow, grow. Uh, and you would never have to pay any taxes on it versus the 401k. Eventually you do have to start taking money out or you'll be penalized uh, and different things like that. Now, if you still have money left over in your 401k and you pass, what happens to that money? I'm actually not too sure. I'm pretty sure it would go to your estate. But we that'd probably be a better question for like a, a an estate attorney or something like that. Okay, yeah, because I was I was curious about that aspect. Oh, yeah. of it. So you're a big fan of Roth IRAs, not um, that's not really. I, I'm not saying that. I like if a W two uh, employees and if you're getting oh, yeah. free money, obviously match that. But I just personally not. Yeah, a no, fan no, no, of and, and, and you know I've run across that you know plenty. So it's like that's not a an uncommon thing to think. You know, a lot of people don't like. So a lot of people also look at it as like, okay, you know, I'm in a low tax bracket now. No reason to really get the tax deduction because it's not like I'm saving a whole bunch of taxes. And then, you know, tax rates, a lot of people, you know, believe tax rates are going to rise. I'm one of them. So in the event that yeah, tax rates rise, whenever you start taking that money out as an RMD, you know, if you got the tax deduction at 10%, but when you start taking the RMD at 20%, you know, it wasn't really like a great, the getting the tax deduction all of a sudden really wasn't that, you know, wasn't that great. You might as well have just pay tax at 10% and, yeah. you know, put it in a Roth and now the money's tax free instead of paying 20%. So that's like my big thing with 401ks is um, we don't know what the future holds. I got gotcha. you. 
So one of the main it's kind of controversial topics uh, going around right now. So they're they're canceling like tw- like twenty thousand yeah. dollars of student loan debt, and I know some states have decided that they're gonna uh, they're gonna tax that. Like I know North Carolina is saying that they are. So what? How does that? How does that work? Like, do they, they take that twenty thousand that the government gave you to uh, for to pay off your student loans, they're going to add that to your income. So rather than 50, you made 70. So how does that? So I'm not sure how all the administrative part of it is going to go, you know, work out whether they're going to issue out 1099s or, you know, whatever the case may be, if they're going to issue out some type of documentation, I'm not sure what they're going to do on that part, but essentially the way how it's going to work is that, um, you know, you won't have to pay any taxes on the federal level. So, um, I'm not sure if it's completely excluded or if you can put it on there and then it just gets exempted from it. I'm not too sure how that part works out, but essentially you won't pay any taxes on the federal level. But then if you have a state that where you have a state tax return and they're also going to make it taxable, you'll see that wh- however much that you got um, forgiven by, you'll see it picked up on your state return. So um, still a lot of details that need to be sh- you know shaken out. I don't think... Has the forgiveness actually rolled through to anyone yet? I, I'm not sure if it actually is yeah. even going to happen or is this like a scheme, but I, I just know that's what yeah. the, they said at one point. So I'm kind of curious of like, so what's I, the yeah, tax? I'm not too sure of that. all the details of how it's going to completely pan out, but essentially what would happen is that on the federal level, you won't pay any taxes. And then on your state return, you'd see the, the forgiveness picked up as income and you would just pay a lower state, you know, state, state taxes are going to be lower than the fed taxes. So, you know, you wouldn't be, you know, it's not going to be like getting clobbered with federal taxes, but you know, you'll probably still, you know, what, what's the average state tax, like what, four or 5% or something like that. Yeah. My, my personal opinion is it doesn't solve any of the problems that are actually going on because people oh, yeah. still are going out and getting student loan debt. So I was like, it's just yeah. like a round and, robin. And, you so, know, I don't I'm know. not to go too far yeah. off into, into controversial, controversial topics, but whenever you <laughs> have people who have something to gain from what's going on, you know, if I, if I can make more money from their stupidity, not that I'm like this, but, you know, why, why, why would I not, you know, continue to capitalize on it? So I think, I think unless that address, that issue is addressed, you know, we'll continue to see, uh, you know, these types of problems play out. So there's no telling what's going to happen. So, um, I know, so let's say for a, a new investor, um, just started getting into real estate. Is there like a really like, like, Hey, at a certain level you do sole proprietor, at a certain level you do S corp, a certain level you do C corp, like, is there certain levels like, hey, that's like a gradual yeah. step you keep so going, real, or like for real estate investors, for tax wise, almost never would you want to put your uh, your rental properties in an S corporation or C corporation. You'd probably almost always be better off just leaving it as a sole proprietorship or a partnership, nothing more. Now, it may make sense if you have like a hotel, like if your business is run more like a hotel then it may make sense to be taxed as like an S-corp. Or if you're doing like fix and flips, then it may make sense to be taxed as an S-corp. But if you're just doing like passive rental income, you'll just want to leave it as, as a, you know, a, a single member LLC or even a multi-member LLC. The reason being is there's so many hidden taxable events that come along with having an S-corporation or even a C-corporation. So first off, you know, if you don't own 80% or more of the business and you transfer an asset into it, 
um, that, that's a taxable event. You have to own o- over 80% for it not to be taxable. Then whenever you move the property back out of the corporation, every shareholder is going to get hit with capital gains tax versus if it were just in a, a single member LLC, you wouldn't have that issue. Then- so you're saying if it, if they, uh, let's say they're S corp and they acquire a property, um, they're getting straight capital gains based on that or cause if they, uh, if they don't yeah, own so more if, than 80% you, of it, if you don't own, so let's just say you're 50, 50 and you, uh, acquire a property and you move it into the S corp, both partners would have to pay a, you know, a percentage of tax, you know, based on the value of the building, moving it in, they would have to pay a certain percentage of tax. The only way you can avoid that tax is if you own 80% or more. Then let's just say these 50-50 partners get into an argument and they want to dissolve their own partnership. That building has to go to someone, you know, or it has, you know, something has to happen to that building. So the, the corporation itself has to sell that asset. And whenever you sell the asset, you have capital gains tax that's associated with that. That capital gain will flow down to each of the shareholders versus if they were just like in a single member LLC, they could essentially just uh, walk away without any major taxable events, you know, like capital gains, you know, or something like that. So what if the S what if the S corp uh, opens up a, and they own a hundred percent of the, uh, a normal LLC and that LLC owns like 40% of this um, property, same thing. I would probably have to look at the structure. That sounds, that sounds like a lot of moving parts, but, but probably <laughs> yeah. more than likely. Yes. So a, another issue whenever you're dealing with S corps is also you have officer compensation. So, Officer compensation is your W-2 salary, which is subject to both Social Security, Medicare and federal income tax. But, you know, passive income, you know, your rental income is passive. And so the passive income is not subject to those taxes anyway. So you're putting, you know, you're going to have this escort where you have to pay yourself, you know, a salary that's subject to more taxes. Uh, You're paying more money to have a corporation return completed for you. Versus, you know, you could have just left it in an LLC. You wouldn't have had to pay yourself a salary. Um, and, it, you know, your, the fees for just filing the tax return are a lot smaller. Not to mention you have to get on payroll. Payroll has additional costs. So. And they make you take a salary, don't they? They Like they said, you got to pay yourself exactly. uh, like a reasonable. Me, I would keep my real estate as far away from S corporations as far as possible. And C-corporations, C- oh you know, too. C-corporations may be a little different, and you may run across some tax lawyers where um, they have a ton of different properties, and maybe they're, like, you know, under, like, a C-corp in some type of way that's, that's structured a certain type of way. I don't really know too much about that, but, you know, as a general rule of thumb, don't put your properties into a corporation. Oh, interesting. So what, uh, so what even that works, even real estate, like, let's say for instance, they're like a real estate agent and they have an S corp, they should just own yeah. their real estate oh, yeah, and something no, completely different. Okay. I got gotcha. you. Hmm. Yeah, no, 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 definitely. I did yeah, not know that. It's a, <clears throat> you know, that, that, that's, that's what I think is, is a message that I think could get out to a lot of real estate investors is no S corps, you know, business income is really all you need for, I'm not gonna say it's all you need, but um, you know you definitely don't want passive income uh, like rental income or anything like that, and then have it put into an S corporation. Definitely not a good a good mix. Because I was told one time, I um like 
just for like a business aspect, like you shouldn't even think about a S corp unless you make, you're making yeah. net 70,000. Yeah, no, and that has a lot of validity uh, to it as well. So, and I'm about, I'm about to, I'm about to really go off and, uh, and hit you with some, with some, with some stuff here, but, but yeah, so essentially it wouldn't make sense for a business owner to be taxed as an S corporation unless they were making enough income for the tax benefit to outweigh the additional costs that they would, that they would incur. You usually see that around like 70, 75, maybe even like 65 K depending on like the area that you're in and things like that. But like I said, the area that you're in is, uh, that's a major factor to consider. So take for example, uh, Tennessee, the state of Tennessee is not exactly a great place to have an S corporation. And why is that? Because, S-Corps, you know, business profit in an S-Corp is not subject to that additional leg of Social Security and Medicare tax. You're only subject to one layer of tax. Well, in the state of Tennessee, if you receive any income that is not subject to Social Security and Medicare tax, you get hit with an additional excise tax. So it's like six and a half percent or something like that. So, um, yeah, you know, so Jeez. again area really depends you know it has a lot of impact on your decision as well so like you're in tennessee even if you have a business it may not make a whole lot of sense to be taxed as an s-corp anyway yeah and i know like for like people listening like a normal llc is basically just like a pass through to to yourself and mainly the llc is just there for like to protect you asset protection wise not necessarily tax wise correct okay interesting so um, before before we hop off of here, is there anything that you would lo- uh, like for people that you probably get questions all the time about certain subjects? Is there anything that you can that comes to mind that yeah. you think people oh, should man, really know so about? Yeah, so many of them. So you know, first off, deductions are not free money. You know, you still have to pay for whatever your deduction is. So <laughs> that's probably like a one of the largest misconceptions that I run across. Um, yeah, people that say it's, it's just a write-off. It's just a write-off. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm guilty of it as well. Like I've definitely gone into like a lunch or something. It's been like a $200 lunch or dinner or whatever. I'm just like, oh, whatever, you know, write-off, you know. $175, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, hey, I'd rather spend it on that than just give the government money. So that's my, oh, yeah, no, my reasoning for that it. Is, that is a very valid point. So one of the things that I really like, um, so – if you filed an extension for your 2021 taxes, that they are due on October 15th of tw- well, it's going to be October 17th this year of 2022. And one of the coolest things about it is that if you uh, have a business and you have like a solo 401k, you can still put money into your account right now um, and lower your 2021 taxes, and it's almost 2023. So. Um, Never underestimate the power of yeah. just having like a um, like a ace in the hole for like a deduction or something like that. And I like to look at solo four hundred one k's as like my ace in the hole. So twenty twenty one is now nearly ten months behind us, and I'm still able to reduce my twenty twenty one taxes yeah. by putting money into that account. So, huh? I gotcha. Um. So I guess one of the uh, since we just mentioned uh, write offs for like for food and all that stuff wasn't because of Corona. They made it where like, like restaurant uh, stuff like that was came yeah, like a hundred percent deductible. So um, is it like zero 50%. now or is it go like 50, yeah, so 50 or like the, the, the original rule is okay. um, business meals are 50% deduction. Uh, and then 
And that's after this year, this or year, this, this year, year you can still year do, you that. Can do this. Next year is 50, next year is fifty percent flat. Uh-huh. Um, so currently, right now, it's still fifty percent for meals. But if you go to a restaurant, it becomes a hundred percent deductible. Um, and yeah, so uh, you know, don't you have to pay for you and someone else's meal, or you have to pay for someone else's meal. Um, you know, if you go in and only buy your meal, I would say no, that wouldn't be counted as a business meal. That would, you know, be a personal meal. So you think about purchasing a meal for like an entire group or something like that. Okay. So like, even if you're going to, uh, like business with like a investor client or anything like that, you have to pay for their meal just to write, write off. Yeah, you can't no, like write you off, you just write yourself. off your meal. And it's funny. Cause I've actually been asked, well, what if they pay for my meal and I pay for their meal? So um, does that make it deductible? <laughs> and um, you know, I don't even know, man. I feel like in the, at the end of the day, <clears throat> something like that would be, you know, one or two meals would be so minuscule that it really wouldn't, you know, move the needle one way or the other. But I certainly wouldn't make a habit of doing something like that, right? So, because uh, in the event something like yeah. that ever got looked at, it probably wouldn't pass the sniff test, in my opinion. But you know, like I said, you do it one, one, once or twice. You know, that's not enough to really just move the needle. Like you'll probably owe an additional twenty dollars in taxes or something like that. So, um, gotcha. So, so right now, like uh, I know. Um, they're building out the IRS army. Um, so w- what does like, uh, like a day, like say you get, when someone gets audited, how does it look like? They just like knock on your you know, door. Usually, they all there. Usually they're um, going to reach out. To what's it called? Um, yeah. Usually they'll reach out to by like mail, you know, or something like that first, you know, they'll, they'll try to resolve the issue. Um, Cause you gotta remember the IRS is still, even though they're in the uh, business of making money, they're also in the business of trying to cut down costs. So if they can, just send you a letter and they can resolve the issue by letter. That's the route that they'll go first. Now, if things can't get resolved, you know, now, unless you're talking about something very, very serious, like, you know, something that I've never actually run across, you know, then maybe, yeah, they'll probably show up at your door completely unannounced and, you know, surprise you that way. But usually they're going to reach out to you by mail. Um, You know, you'll probably even have like a phone call with someone. They They may call you. They'll reach out to you by mail first. They're not going to really call you that much, you know, only if you've received letters and like they haven't heard from you or maybe you've been in contact with them, then maybe, you know, you can get a call from the IRS, but usually you're going to get like mail and then, you know, you'll be notified if they're going to come out and do like a field audit. So, you know, you'll be notified of, 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 of a few things, you know, it's not just going to come out and hit you uh, all at all at once, you know, just super randomly. Um, yeah, so, uh, crap, I just lost my train of thought, but, um, okay. So like, let's say we just, uh, they just got came in with the windbreakers. Is it like, I don't know. Do they just come in and say, uh, I think, oh crap. So, I mean, you know, usually you got to remember a lot of these guys are, a lot of these people, they're people, you know, they're, they're not really looking to, to be, have a, a painful day you have some you have a few that'll probably be you know they'll always wake up on, on with a bad attitude but most of the time these these are just people who are trying to you know work the situation out and whenever they come to visit you they kind of already know 
you know, what the situation is, what they're going to be looking at. So, uh, you know, they'll start asking for documentation and they'll sit down and they'll ask for like, you know, your income statement, balance sheet, you know, all the good business uh, reports that you would need for something like an audit. Uh, and, you know, they just start going through, they look at your tax return, like line eight, line nine, you know, whatever the case may be. And they just start asking for documentation of the different, uh, you know, businesses and uh, of the different uh, expenses and different things like that. So it's kind of funny. So I, I have this friend, his, uh, his mom actually is, works for the IRS, but she's the, uh, like the IRS, like if you threaten the IRS, oh, they, they oh, come oh. for you. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, man, that's, that's a little interesting. I was like, Hey, just, yeah, no, just keep her away from me. And, you know? and officers, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're government agents, you know, so you, you don't want to threaten them. You don't yeah. want to mislead them. You don't want to give them false information or anything like that. You want to be very straight up with them, you know. Um, so yeah, because yeah. like, like even if you owe, let's say, like, uh, let's say you owe, like, let's say something happens and you mess up and you owe like five thousand dollars or something like that, are they just gonna like put you in a straight jacket and no, then no, no, no. Uh, take so, you away? Like, so do they- the IRS, they know that it would be better for them to collect the money than to you know do something to you, make you go to jail, you know, cause distrust in the community. They would much rather just have you pay the bill. And if you can't pay the full 5,000, we'd much rather just come to an agreement that you can probably pay us $1,500 instead of the full 5,000. We'll just forgive you because, you know, it's, I can't remember the exact verbiage, but they want to, you know, provide, uh, I can't remember the exact verbiage, but they they don't want to cause any uh, economic distress on taxpayers so you know if, if, if you that's a big misconception of what everyone else says about the rs i think like le- leather jackets grab you out of the house or something like that or say like, hey you owe this money you're going to jail or even not even give you the opportunity to pay that's my perception i think, I think i've never of, been audited their, so. so here's the thing if, if you get audited and they find that you're you know you know committing fraudulent activities they're not going to have like any type of leniency towards you now do they understand that people make mistakes? Yeah, of course. And, you know, if, if it's three years ago and they're asking for receipts to validate a deduction and you can't find them, it's really on the discretion of the of the auditor. They may throw it out. They may not. You know, I mean, these are people like they, they definitely understand that things happen. But um, it would be better for the IRS, you know, on a larger picture for them to just come to an agreement and collect the money than it is for them to cause further distrust in like the the community so um they're supposed to be you know op, you know creating a tax system that's fair and equal for all um but i think one of their biggest issues is they have terrible communication amongst themselves internal communication with the irs to me is just so you know you could be dealing yeah, well, they got well, the numbers now. So one person from 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 one uh, you know department, and they haven't communicated at all with someone else. So you could be communicating with two different people that have two different messages, and they're just telling you two different things. That's like a, an issue that I run across quite often. I just hear these stories of like uh, the IRS comes and like the business owner turns like the AC all the way up and like tries to freeze them or like turns the heat off. I always hear there's a uh, cri- well. Not oh, I, I, I haven't dealt with anything like that. I, but then again, I haven't been in the industry long enough to probably deal with something like that. So, yeah, yeah. 
But um, I, I, I uh, actually, do you have any like piece of advice for someone just starting out, let's say in real estate for tax wise? Do you have any like piece of advice for them? Yeah, like, so I like would say make like, a smart financial move before you go for the tax uh, portion of everything, right? So you want to make sure that you have a good, solid cash flowing property versus, uh, you know, something that you got just for the one time tax incentive. Because, you know, the idea is that this is going to cash flow for you for several years, you know, down the line. So uh, go for the financial move. Don't always go for the tax move. Taxes is just uh, a benefit on top of your financial move. And do you think everyone should get like a a real uh, tax professional to help them on their tax planning, or do you just yeah, say, "Hey, there's um, a point where if you, you have rental properties, almost guarantee you get with a tax professional. If you have a business, I would almost say, yeah, you need to get with a tax professional. If you just have like a W two job and maybe like a few stocks and bonds, you know, maybe maybe something like that, you may be okay. Um, but yeah, if you have a business, if you have real estate, if you have anything outside of the norm, definitely get with a tax professional. Gotcha. 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 Okay. Well, um, well, I really appreciate you coming on here. I've, I've learned a lot and, uh, I'm glad like my fears have been a little settled because that was always my fear. Like the IRS, yeah. like, cause no one's perfect. And I think Warren Buffett has the, th- uh, the saying it's like the, if the cop follows, uh, anyone for a long, uh, long oh, amount and, of time, and, you're going to find and something that's, wrong. That's usually so. almost guaranteed how it is. Is like, if you, if you want to find something wrong, you will find something wrong, but um, you know, there's, there's a thing with like good stance with the IRS, you know, if you're constantly making your payments, you know, you're, um, you know, th- that's the thing that I see a lot with people who owe like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in back taxes. If they're up to date on their current payments, then they're a little bit more lenient on the fact that you owe a hundred thousand dollars and they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll take, they'll take it easy on you. Take it easy year, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like uh, like people are trying to like hide money from the IRS. I don't think you can do that anymore because I think the what I think what it, the banks uh I think it's like three thousand dollars anywhere oh, yeah. the banks uh, have to report to it, and then like I think cash is like ten or something like so. You're not going to get away with it. Yeah. So might as well just yeah. be you might as well learn it, so. you know what you can do to pay the least amount of taxes as you can, uh, and then just be truthful from there. I wouldn't try anything you know too sketchy. And there's so many like uh like the more you learn about taxes, there's so many like tax incentives of ways oh, yeah. to legally not pay taxes rather oh, yeah. than trying no, no, to definitely. do it illegally. So but um again I appreciate you coming to the show and uh I've learned a lot and I know a lot of people yeah. have received yeah, a lot yeah, of value. No, thank, thanks so again for having it. me on here. I, I I truly enjoyed it. And actually if if, if someone wanted to uh hear more about you, learn more about you. Where can yeah, they, you know, you can where can they find Instagram more about you at Doherty tax solutions, or you can follow me on Twitter at Doe tax solutions. Uh, you can just check out, I, I post a bunch of free content daily on, on both channels.